mentioned in the first service that I'd much rather hear John than me, and there was this chorus of amens all over the <laughs> I had to chuckle when John said that uh, you're really not qualified to talk about marriage until you've been married 25 years. Uh, I've been married 37, and uh, I still don't feel qualified. We had our 37th wedding anniversary this past week, and Thursday morning, Carolyn woke up and she said, uh, 36 years of wedded bliss. And I said, no, honey, it's 37. She said, I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, John and I go way back. We uh, served on the same staff for ten years. I, as I was sitting there, memories were running through my mind of various uh, uh, ministries that we were involved in on the Stanford campus and working with uh, the flower people of the '60s and. Those were just amazing, amazing times. Twenty-five years ago or more, I was walking across the grounds of Mount Hermon Christian Conference Center with Ron Ritchie, who's the father of our current high school pastor, Rod Ritchie. And uh, Ron pointed out John. He was pushing a broom at the swimming pool, and he said, You see that young man? God's going to use him greatly. And he and I, Ron and I, sat at... John's feet during that week. It was a college conference that Ron and I were involved in and listened to John sing. Actually, some of the songs that he just sang this morning, these went into his first uh, first uh, album, A Cold Cathedral, and ministered to us then, continues to minister to us uh, now. God has Ron's prediction has come true. God has greatly used this uh, this man. Hope you'll come tonight. Bill said, do come early. Uh, last, two years ago, when John was here, there was standing room only, so you'll need to come early and get a seat. I'd like to invite you to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, and we're going to conclude our studies in this book uh, this morning. Uh, Paul uh, does in this last paragraph what he does in all of his letters. I think he probably took the quill from the hand of his scribe, and he began to write in his characteristic, bold script a final note to these uh, people in Philippi. Paul was had some sort of eye problem, extremely myopic, uh, couldn't see well, had to get very close to the page, and his large scrawl that represented his uh, script was his uh, characteristic uh, note he says in Galatians, you see what large letters I have written to you. This is my sign in all of the churches. You ever happen to be uh, excavating in the Middle East and you, happen, and you turn up a manuscript of Paul's that has uh, a large script at the bottom, then you know you've got the original letter. Hang on to it. It's worth a lot of money. Uh, there are none of those autographs, as they say, around this particular closing note is a thank you note. It's always a gracious thing to do. I, I love getting thank you notes from people. I like to write thank you notes. Simply a gracious way to express appreciation when people do something for you. And that's what this final paragraph is. It's a thank you note. 
Paul, as you know, uh, was under house arrest in Rome uh, because he was a political prisoner. He had not been incarcerated. He wasn't in jail. He was permitted to rent his, uh, his own apartment. Though he was guarded by Roman soldiers, 24 hours a day, he had a certain measure of freedom. Under Roman judicial, uh, uh, the Roman judicial system, prisoners supported themselves. Uh, they were not supported by the state. Paul had to raise his own board and room. Luke tells us in the uh, last, in the closing words of the book of Acts that Paul rented an apartment in Rome at considerable expense, costly place uh, to live then as now. And these people in Philippi had been lavish in their gifts to Paul. As a matter of fact, he says in chapter 1 that they had been from the very beginning involved with him in, in his Ministry describes their giving as a grace, that is, they gave with godlike generosity, delighted to give. Uh, these people in Philippi were, were very generous. As a matter of fact, in one place, Paul uses them as, as an example of giving. Paul uh, was experiencing a certain amount of strain with the people in Corinth, was asking them for a gift in, uh, in order to bring to the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering. Appeals to the Corinthians by alluding to the exemplary giving of, of the people in Philippi. Generous, gracious people. If you remember when Chris introduced this book some weeks ago, he pointed out in, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And we, we apply that statement generally to all sorts of things, rightly so, but in context, it has to do with their giving. He who has begun a good work in you through your gift will complete it till the day of Christ. They would be blessed so they could give more. Very generous group. Epaphroditus had come from Philippi with this gift. Paul was able to pay the rent for that uh, that month. He's extremely grateful. And he pens these words beginning with verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. It's not that they were reluctant to give. There was probably no one traveling between Philippi and Rome. And uh, there was no opportunity for the people in Philippi to get this uh, gift to the apostle. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. 
And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now that's clearly a thank you note. But as I understand this passage, the thank you note is really a matrix for two statements, two very significant statements that Paul makes that are essentially a philosophy of things, how to deal with material things. The world's divided into two entities. There are people and there are things. People are God's most important product. People matter. People are significant. People are created in the image of God. That is, they're the, the most godlike beings in all of creation. We're special. People are unique. People are significant. We all know what people are, and we know who people are. Things are everything else. Our houses, our possessions, our gold, our silver, our condos, our cars. Everything else in the world, every other material thing, every other non-rational thing is just a thing. Well, there are people and there are things. Now, we're taught early on to love people and use things. Our culture uh, turns that around and we are inclined to love things and, and use people. We're confronted every day with more opportunities to buy. Rebates, easy payment plans, borrow against this so you have what you want today. So we're inclined to get preoccupied with things and use people in order to acquire them. The Bible turns that around, love people and use things, but to correctly understand what the Bible is saying, I need to add a phrase. We are to love people and use things to love people. We're not merely uh, called to use things, but to employ those things in such a way that we express love to others. Now, that's what this uh, final paragraph is all about. It's a philosophy of how you use things in order to love people. And what struck me as I read through this passage this past week is that there are two statements, two negative statements, two provisos, two corrections. They just pop off the page at you. The first is in verse 11. Not that I speak from want, he says. And in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Not that I speak from want, not that I seek the gift itself, but I speak the fruit that accrues to your account. And embodied in those two phrases is one of the most, most profound philosophies of things that I've ever come across. Now let's look at the first one. Not that I speak with respect to want. You understand what Paul is saying? Thank you so much for the gift. I appreciate it so much. I can pay the rent this uh, this month. I can put groceries on the table. I, I, I did need the gift, and, and I, I want to thank you so much for sending it, but I didn't really have to have it. You understand what he's saying? There are so many things that we have to have. We have to have a new couch. 
We have to have a new car. We have to have winter clothes. We have to have a cabin in, in the woods. There's so many things that we have to have because we think that we're going to find contentment in things. But if I understand what Paul is saying here, I really don't need anything except God and what God gives me. And I'm content with that, Paul says. I don't, I don't need anything else. I'd like to call your attention to one other place in which Paul makes that argument. Turn to 1 Timothy and let me give you a preview of the book we're going to be studying next fall. It's our plan to begin the middle of September to study through this letter to Timothy. It's Paul's first letter. And in chapter 6, verse 5, Paul is addressing the whole issue of people that use religion to aggrandize themselves. There's some, he says, who, who think that godliness or religion is a means of gain, a way of acquiring power, prestige, money. And unfortunately, we've had some embarrassing examples of that sort of thing in recent years where people have used their faith as a means of enriching themselves. Paul says there's some people like that. And he says in verse 6, godliness actually is a a means of great gain. Uh, He's going to tell us what that means later. When it's accompanied by contentment. There is a sense in which there's something very valuable about our faith. There is a wealth in our faith when it's coupled with contentment. When we learn to be content with, with God himself and whatever God gives us. You don't want anything else. Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. We came into the world naked, we go out of the world naked. Can't take it with you. Doesn't make any difference how much uh, you amass in terms of property, possessions, wealth. Uh, in, in this life, as Chuck Swindoll is fond of saying, you just never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Can't take it with you. You may have heard the story of the man that was buried in a gold Cadillac and as he was being lowered into the ground, somebody said, man, that's living. (laughs) Just realizing that we can't take it with you, take it with us, puts everything into perspective. See, the only thing that endures eternally is people. It's the only eternal commodity in this world, everything else we leave behind. You know my favorite story. I've told it two or three times about the stockbroker who encountered a genie and the genie. He asked the genie for a Wall Street Journal one year hence and then immediately turned to the market page. And he was thinking through the killing that he would make and his eye happened to fall on his picture on the page uh, on the other side and, and it was the obituary column. And there he was. In the obits. Yeah, that, that puts everything in perspective. There isn't a thing in this life that we're going to take with us. It doesn't make any difference how wealthy we are or how much we amass or acquire. We're, we're going to leave it all behind. Paul says we come into this world naked. We come out of, we go out of this world naked. So he says if we have food and cover, it's actually his word for shelter, not clothing, but shelter. We have food and shelter with these. We shall be content. Like Walt Disney's Baloo, all we need are the bare necessities of life. But those who want to get rich, she says, fall into temptation and a snare. They get trapped. They get ensnared by by money. 
and many foolish and harmless desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with, with many a pang. Someone has said, if money is your God, it will plague you like the devil. The more you have, the more you want. That's a bottomless pit. You can never have enough. You know, we pity the, 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 the poor old tycoon with his money fixation. And we don't learn the lesson that the wise man gives us in the book of Proverbs. He who has money never has enough. You can never have enough money or power or prestige in this world to satisfy you. The more you have, the more you want. A friend of mine calls that the Barbie doll law. Accessories that once were thought to be optional become mandatory, creating needs that you never thought of before. And you see, the problem is that we always suffer by comparison. No matter how much we have, somebody always has more. George MacDonald says, anywhere suits for the worship of mammon. But uh, honest to goodness, I think of all places in the world, Sun Valley is probably the premier place for the quest for mammon. We, we were, a uh, friend loaned us a cabin last week and we were up there near Ketchum and I, we went into town to get groceries and I was walking down the street and it, it just struck me as I was looking around. Sun Valley is all about money, sex, and power. And the problem is somebody always has more of it than you do. So there's this vast emptiness. That's why everybody is so restless up there. I mean, you know, they're inline skating or they're pedaling or they're shushing or they're running or they're doing something, you know, and, and, it, and it's fun to watch. But I always think of that Alabama line. All I, I really have to do is live and die, and I'm in a hurry, and I don't know why. <laughs> the more you get, the more you want. And if we're not content, our discontent will plug us like the devil. Paul has an interesting argument in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm not going to have you turn there because we don't have time, but... He's enumerating the, the, the wonderful ways in which God blessed His people while they were in the wilderness. That They had the, the Shekinah, the, the, the cloud that led them through the wilderness. They, they had the rock that, uh, that gave them water, the rock that Moses struck. They had the manna from heaven fell every, every day. They were provided for. Paul says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Because they craved evil things. Oh, I, I know what they did. You know, gave way to pagan immorality and idolatrous revelry. And Paul says, right, right. It refers to some Old Testament incidents, things that happened in the in in the wilderness, dancing, cavorting around the gold calf at Sinai, and uh, the immorality that they engaged in with the, the daughters of Baal Peor. <laughs> But then he refers to the most telling incident that that day that they began to complain and grumble because they didn't like the manna from heaven. They were so tired of eating it. They grumbled, Paul says. And that's craving evil things. It's wanting something more than God or what God has given to us. Paul says that's an evil craving. And the bottom line for Paul, very last note in that passage, 
as little children, keep yourself from idols. See, because that's what idolatry is. Idolatry isn't what it used to be, you know, dancing around a golden calf. It's uh, wanting something more than God or something more than God has given to us. Carolyn has been reading uh, the Ragamuffin Gospel, uh, Brendan Manning's book, and she passed on to me a quote the other day. Manning says, It requires the truth to admit the attachments and addictions that control our attention, dominate our conscience, our, our conscience, and conscience and function as false gods. I can be addicted to vodka or being nice, to marijuana or being loved, to cocaine or being right, to gambling or relationships, to golf or gossip. Perhaps my addiction is food, performance, money, popularity, power, revenge, television, tobacco, weight, or winning. When we give anything more popularity than we give to God, We've committed idolatry. Idolatry is wanting more than God or more than God has has given to us. Oh, it is so hard to be content in this world. It is so hard. We always want something more. Paul tells us the secret of contentment. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to be enriched. I've learned how to live in humble circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's another one of those verses that we apply generally. And it's true, generally. Paul is not saying that we can do all things in the sense that we can run faster than a speeding bullet or leap tall buildings in a single bound. He's not what he's talking about. He's talking about doing whatever God calls us to do, whatever He asks us to do. And He asks us to be content. Paul says, I can do all things through the One who strengthens me. Are you worried about your materialism as, as I worry about mine? Then we need to ask God to, to deal with that idol. Ask Him. Ask Him to strengthen it's all the blandishments, inducements of this world to have more, to acquire more. Built into every marketing effort is the idea that you just acquire one more thing and you're going to be happy. They're selling happiness, not goods. That's a lie. Happiness comes from God and accepting what God gives to us. Even the tacky old sofa or the run-down, beat-up old car or whatever it is that you possess at this moment. It's God's gift. We must be content. George MacDonald prayed, A quiet heart, submissive, meek, Father, do thou bestow, which more than granted will not seek to have or give or know. I love that phrase. Then more, which more than granted will not seek. To be content with God and with what God has given to us. I uh, uh, had this little poem placed on your bulletin entitled, Th- actually it's the lyrics of a song that Scott Wesley Brown wrote. Things upon the mantle, things on every shelf, things that others gave me, things I gave myself, things I've stored in boxes that don't mean much anymore. Old magazines and memories behind the attic door. Things on hooks and hangers, things on ropes and rings, things I guard that blind me to the pettiness of things. 
Am I like the rich young ruler, ruled by all I own? If Jesus came and asked me, could I leave them all alone? O Lord, I look to heaven beyond the veil of time to gain eternal insight that nothing's really mine. And to only ask for daily bread and all contentment brings to find freedom as your servant in the midst of all these things. For discarded in the junkyards, rusting in the rain, lie things that took the finest years of lifetimes to obtain. And whistling through the tombstones, the hollow breezes sing a song of dream surrender to the tyranny of things. Oh God, that we would be delivered from the tyranny of, of the things that, that, that grip our hearts. See, one of the problem with, uh, with loving things is not that we keep them out of people's hands that need them. It often is, is, is the, is the motivation to give. There are needy people out there you need to give. And that, that's a legitimate motivation, but our Lord's primary concern is what it does to our hearts. See, our hearts are corroded and corrupted by the same rust that rusts the treasure. We lose our hearts away from God. Jesus said you can't love God and mammon. You'll either love one or, and hate the other, or you'll hate one and love the other. You can't love God and, and love mammon. You can't love mammon and love God. It's just that simple. Our hearts are corroded away. When we make an idol out of things, when we worship, we bow down to them, when we insist that, that we have to have them. Paul says, not that I speak from one. Thanks for the gift. You're so gracious. I appreciate it so much, but I don't really have to have it. Well, but Paul, you'll get thrown out in the street. Sorry, I still have God. Paul, you may starve to death. That's all right. I don't have to eat. I, I still have God. Paul, you'll be in big trouble with the Roman government. That's, that's all right. It's all right. I still have God. Hey, what a wonderful spirit to, to be content with whatever we have. To, to be able to enjoy beautiful things, but not be dominated by them. To be content with such things as, as we have. Let me add a little footnote to this. I want to talk about cold church because uh, this principle can be applied not only individually but corporately as well. People from time to time get really concerned about uh, the fact that we're behind in our budget this year, about $60,000 down, as you know from the bulletin. And people say, Aren't you alarmed? Why don't you say more about it? Why, you know, why don't you call for people to give? And I have to say, you know, we are so thankful to you people for your liberality. I cannot recall it. I don't think there's been a single year that we have ever finished the year without being in the black. Sometimes we're right on the line. Sometimes we even have a, a little surplus. But, but God, there's a million dollar budget and yet every year the Lord provides. And you say, thank you to you. God touched your hearts to do that. And, and I know you live, you give to other ministries as well, not just this one. And we appreciate it so much. But I want to say this. We don't have to have it. You say, well, but ministries will be curtailed. All right, that's true. There will be certain programs that we can't do, and that's usually the first thing we cut. But the ministries go on. 
God is still at work. You say, well, you might have to lay off staff. That's okay. That's all right. You know, some of us will go out and get a real job. <laughs> we'll work for a living. It's all right. You know, ministry will go, but you might lose the building. Yeah, we might. But the kingdom of God will go on. Cold church is going to fade one of these days. Institutions come and go. We may lose the building. I'm, we're not facing that in this particular situation. I don't want to alarm you. Um, we always pay our bills first. We feel that our first obligation is to the world outside. We always pay our bills first. We pay our missionaries second. Staff comes third. Money isn't there. They don't get paid. It's just that simple. But you see, we don't have to have it. We can do without it. I want to say again, we appreciate so much your giving. But we don't have to have it. We can be content with those circumstances in which God places us. Content with God and what He gives us. Not that I speak with respect to want, Paul says. That's the first step. The second is not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. You understand what Paul is saying? I'm so glad that you gave, not for my sake, but for yours. That's always the motivation in giving, because the giver benefits far more than the one who receives the gift. It's always true. Paul says in this passage, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's stuck right on the right up against the first statement. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for meeting my needs. Now God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Oh, good, you say that. You know, success theology. God's going to put me in a Neiman Marcus wardrobe and make a make a fortune in the commodities market. No, 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 no. So he's talking about it all. The way it works is like this. God gives us more so we can give more. He doesn't give so we can enrich ourselves. He gives so we can use our things to en- to spiritually enrich others. Paul makes that argument in in Second uh, Corinthians eight and nine, where he commends the uh, church in Philippi for their godlike generosity. He's using the church in Philippi as, as an example of, of gracious giving. There's some strain between Paul and the church in Corinth. Here, here was a church up here in Macedonia that was providing for a church over Jerusalem. Isn't, isn't that remarkable that one church would care enough about other churches that they would give to those churches? That, that, that's the attitude that we ought to have as a church. To give our resources away, to give our people away, to give our facilities away, to help churches that are that are less fortunate. And, and Paul commends the church in Philippi, and then he says to the folks in Corinth, "Look, it's like sowing seed. You know, you put seed in a bag and hoard it. All you have is the seed. You sow it, you have more, so you can sow it again. You give, so God gives you more, so you you can give more." Now, that's what Paul means, I think, when he says, use things to love people. The only commodities going to heaven are people. Our money doesn't go there, but we can use our money to send people there and to help people mature that are going there. Paul says in that 2 Corinthians passage, those folks are going to, over in Jerusalem are going to pray for you. They're your friends see, because you, you've provided for them. One of the best ways to make eternal friends is to... Uh, Give our things 
away. Helps us. We loosen our grasp on those things. Benefits others. Benefit on both sides. I, 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 uh, I have three very nice fly rods, two I built myself. One was a, was a L.O. Dickerson cane rod that was given to me by friends. Very, very expensive rod. People ask me if they can use my equipment. I go, Swallow hard. Yeah, okay. It's just a thing. One of these days, I'm going to leave it behind. Somebody else can use it then. But in the very act of giving, something is is accomplished. Our Lord told the most interesting story about a man who embezzled some funds from his employer. He was in big trouble. His employer called him in and said, Look, I know that you've squandered my possessions. Now you give an account of yourself or you're out of here. The man goes back and looks at the books and there's no way he can cook them to make it right. He knows that he's finished. So he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm I'm too uh, weak to dig and uh, uh, too proud to beg and I'm going to make friends out there. So when I get kicked out of my master's house, I've got some place to go. I'm going to have some friends out there. So he goes to one of his employer's uh, debtors. He says, how much do you owe my master? He says, 100 uh, measures of oil. He says, okay, take, take, take the contract and write 50. And then he goes to another one of uh, his master's debtors and he says, uh, how, how much do you owe my master? And he says, 100 measures of wheat. He says, okay, write 80. And Jesus said, that's a very wise man. Now, he's not saying, you know, we should be unscrupulous like that because he goes on to say that the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light. He's not saying that that's a righteous thing to do. What he's saying is that this is someone that understands that uh, you need to uh, lay up treasure somewhere, somewhere else. and You need to provide for your future. And one of these days, uh, you're going to, when you see the Lord's face, you're in His presence, someone's going to walk up to you and say, do you remember that gift that you gave to Young Life or to this organization or that organization? That's what brought me to Christ. I'm here because of you. Now that's what Jesus meant by storing up treasure in heaven. Or as he put it in that Luke 16 passage, making eternal friends who will welcome you into eternal habitations in, into heaven. So use your money for that, for that purpose. Now that's a succinct philosophy of, of things. First, we have to understand that, that contentment comes from God alone and from receiving with thanksgiving what God is giving and wanting nothing more than that. Knowing that God is able to meet our needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's being content with such things as you have, as Hebrews says. Because the Lord has said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. The second thing is to realize that as we use things in order to minister to other people, that we're producing fruit for eternity. We may not see the results in, in this age, but one of these days, 
when we stand before our Lord, there will be a host of people there for whom we are responsible. They're there because we're willing to give.